Hebrews chapter number 3, if you would please. And we're going to read this morning somewhat of a, uh, I guess, a, a lengthy portion of Scripture, maybe compared to what we normally would. Um, and uh, in this passage, it's important for us to understand that the Lord is making some parallels and comparisons for us between the nation of Israel and our Christian lives. And he's pointing to an event that took place way back, kind of in the beginning, when he had led them out of Egypt with the intention of bringing them into the promised land. And, and, and the word of God gives us some admonitions here to not be like they were. And so we're going to pick it up here in, in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 7. Let's go ahead and stand together as we read the scripture. If you're not able to stand, that's totally fine. You can remain seated. But let's stand, if you can, and read beginning in chapter 3 and verse 7, and then we're going to read down into chapter 4 uh, as well. So uh, Hebrews 3, verse 7 says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear his voice... Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, while it is said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that, he sh that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. 
For if Jesus had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from us. Let us therefore, or let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. That's a lengthy passage, and there is an awful lot there that we could talk about. And honestly, we're not going to take the time to examine each piece and aspect of this passage of Scripture that is before us this morning. But there are a few points and a few statements that are made in this parallel between Israel and us that I think are important for us to consider. Last week, I preached to you from the book of Isaiah in chapter 6, and that contrast between Isaiah and when he saw the vision of the Lord and his response to that was uh, an awareness of himself and his condition and a humility and a surrender there and a desire to serve and please the Lord. That was what came about when the Lord showed himself to him. But then ironically, his job was to take what God had given to him and proclaim it to a people who would have just the opposite response. Instead of humbling themselves, they would be hardened. Instead of submitting to the Lord, they would reject the Lord. And instead of serving the Lord, they would serve self. And, and his job was to take the message that God had given to him and preach it to a people that it would have a totally different effect. And I challenged you from from God's word, not to receive his word with hardness of heart, but to be humble and submissive. Because hardened hearts are not the correct way to respond to God's word. But I want to show you something from this passage of scripture this morning and some others that we're going to look at in terms of a wrong response to hearing the word of the Lord. And the last week we looked at the hardness of heart, and it's discussed here in this passage as well. But I want to just point out to you a few things here uh, from this passage that's a different take on the hardened hearts. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3, if you would, where it says here, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Uh, a hard heart is the, the, the wrong way to respond to God's word, but likewise is unbelief. Did you know it's possible for you to hear the word of God and respond with faithlessness and unbelief? And God admonishes us and, and, and commands us not to respond to his word in that way. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. It says, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. That's a, an interesting statement, that God was preaching the gospel to Israel all those years ago, before Jesus ever even came and died. He was giving them truth, not just so that they would uh, obey him and be blessed in this life, but so that they could understand the gospel. He was trying to reveal himself to them and and, and, and yes, he was offering them 
physical blessings in this life by bringing them into the promised land, but the intention was that their hearts would turn to God in faith and receive salvation. And the gospel that you are hearing today and the gospel that you and I know and preach is the same gospel that was preached unto them. But I want you to notice the difference. It says the gospel uh, uh, unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, listen to these words, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. The title of the message this morning is simply that, not mixed with faith. Did you know that if you hear the word of God preached and you respond with unbelief or faithlessness, the word of God is of no profit to you. If you come to the house of the Lord and you listen to the preaching of God's word, but you do not respond in faith, it has done you no good to sit under God, the preaching of God's word. Nothing. It has profited you nothing. Now I want you to hold your place here in Hebrews chapter 3. Because we're going to come back here and, and look at this. But I want to go to Acts chapter number 17. Because I think it's important for us to, to consider this. Maybe sometimes we have this idea in our minds that... <clears throat> There are basically two types of people out there. There are those who scorn God's word, and then there are those who believe it. But I propose to you that there are actually three types of people. There are those who scorn the word of God, those who outright reject its truth, that would even maybe mock what we're doing here today and say that it's of no value. You know, that's just a, a, an ancient, outdated book written by men, and you can't be trusted, and, and you ought not live your life according to that. There are those people out there. But I want you to notice that there are also people who don't necessarily out and out reject the truth, but still respond to it with unbelief. We're in Acts 17, and, and here... Uh, uh, Paul has been preaching to uh, really pagan people that are worshiping false gods in, in the city of Athens, Greece. And on Mars Hill, he's been preaching to them Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And notice what it says in verse 32 at the end of the chapter. It says, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, listen to this, some mocked and others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So Paul departed from among them, howbeit certain clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so here you actually have three different kinds of people. They all heard the same message. That's important for you to understand. They all heard the same message from the same preacher. It wasn't as though some just hadn't heard a convincing enough argument yet, while others did. They all heard the same message. But three very distinct responses to the gospel. One was some mocked. There will always be people who just outright reject the word of God, want nothing to do with it, and will scorn and mock and laugh. And you know what? We really don't need to worry too much about them. I mean, pray for them, love them, but they're really not the big problem. 
Some of them believed. And, and the response in their belief was, it says that they clave to Paul. I mean, they, they latched on to the message he was preaching and followed him. But I propose to you that the middle one that we read there is the group of people in the most danger who said, we will hear thee again of this matter. You see, when they heard the gospel, they didn't reject it in the sense that they totally denied its validity. But in truth, they didn't really embrace it either. They were amicable to the truth. They were willing to listen to the truth. But they weren't willing to respond in faith. And I fear that sometimes people come and sit in a Bible preaching church and they're certainly not opposed to the truth. They're not enemies of the truth. They're not looking to mock and to scorn. But the truth is they're not really willing to embrace either. They're not willing to respond in faith and, and accept the truth and be obedient to it. And so from this passage of Scripture, I want to just point out to you some things that I think are important for us to consider. First of all, unbelief is sin. Unbelief is sin. I think sometimes we have this idea in our minds that, you know... <clears throat> I wish I had the faith like this person over here. I wish I could believe that, but I just haven't really been granted that faith. But God seems to see things differently because he calls unbelief sin. Go back to uh, Hebrews 3, if you would, and look what it says in verse number 12. It says here, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an... What are those next two words? Evil heart of unbelief. God looks at a heart of unbelief and he says that's an evil heart. It's wicked. It is sin. And by the way, the New Testament bears this out in other places as well when it tells us, for instance, in the book of Romans that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Why? Because we are called to live by faith and walk by faith. And Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So unbelief is sin. And also I want to say to you on this as well, that this is not a message only for those who have not been saved. Because the truth is that this admonition was to a group of people who most of them were already saved. And it says in verse 12 again, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Verse 1, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Verse 11, let us therefore labor to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. This is an admonition primarily to believers. 
and the danger of unbelief. You see, it's possible for you, even as a saved, born-again child of God, to respond to God's word with unbelief. And I, I believe that it's not necessarily just, again, not just a rejection. No, I don't believe that that's true. But it's an unwillingness to act in obedience to God and His Word. That is, by the way, the example that he's pointing out here is the nation of Israel. And when God had uh, told them that He was going to bring them into the Promised Land, and we're not going to take the time to go through that, but I would encourage you to go back and read Numbers 13 and 14. God had told them that he, was, he had promised them a, a, a land that was a land flowing with milk and honey. He told them he was going to drive out the inhabitants of that land and they were going to possess it. All they had to do was simply obey him and follow him. And then the 12 spies went into the land and they came back and 10 of them, the Bible says, had an evil report. Uh, there was fear because there were giants in the land and they didn't think that they had the ability to take the land. What they didn't realize or what they forgot was it wasn't in their ability to take the promised land. It was simply the promise of God. They just needed to respond with faith and trust God and let God do it. But because of their fear, the people, rather than saying, hey, listen, we're going to believe God and do what God said, they looked at the circumstances and they said, this is impossible. And God said that was sin. So much so that that entire generation from 20 years old and upward would not ever get to enter into that rest that God had promised them. They never had the opportunity to enter into the promised land because they rejected God's word. Now never in there did they say, I think God lied to us. Never did they say, God can't be trusted. They didn't say it with their mouth. They said it with their actions. And how often do we say with our actions that God can't be trusted? Because we do not respond with faith and obedience, inaction is a result of unbelief. Christians are very much capable of responding to God with unbelief. So unbelief is sin. Secondly, let me say this, unbelief is evidenced by our actions. I've already made reference to that. You see, our actions prove what we really believe. Our actions prove what we really believe. Go forward to James, if you would. The next book, James chapter number 2. <clears throat> In James 2, we're challenged about the reality of our faith. Verse number 18, James says here, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Here's his response. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. My actions prove what I really believe. 
You know, there are a lot of churches out there today that if you read their statement of faith, you'd say, boy, we're in agreement. We, we would agree with everything that they have stated. These are assertions that they claim they believe as truth, and, and, and we believe those things to be true so we could be in fellowship with them. But then you look at their practice and what they actually put into practice or overlook. And you know what you find? Sometimes there's a discrepancy between what they say they believe and what they do. But actions speak louder than words, don't they? Your practice, your obedience proves your faith. It proves what you actually, really, truly believe. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1, if you would. I love the book of Colossians. We're probably going to be... I'll probably be preaching from Colossians here in the near future, Lord willing. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says to the church here in verse 3, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which ye have to all saints. Did you catch on to that? He said, We give thanks to God for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all saints. You know, any time that someone gives testimony of receiving Christ as Savior, we ought to rejoice. We should rejoice when someone says, you know, I got saved. I mean, that's a wonderful thing. But notice that Paul's not saying we're, we're just praising the Lord because of your faith. He said we're praising the Lord because of your faith and the love that you're showing to the saints. Why? Because the love that is being shown to the saints is evidence that that faith is genuine. If there's no love there, there's no faith. The Bible bears that out clearly. You're not a child of God. You're not, you're not in fellowship with God if you hate your brother. Love for the brethren is an evidence of true, genuine faith. So what Paul is saying is we're rejoicing not only in the testimony that you have faith, but also the testimony that that faith is being proved out in the way that you live. And folks, I, I don't mean this in an unkind or hurtful way this morning, but I am burdened by the number of Christian people that will give lip service to the truth, that will say amen to the preaching of the word of God, but never put to practice what they have heard. Do you know what that tells me? When we fail to obey it, it's because we failed to believe it. There's an evil heart of unbelief. This is serious, folks. Think about this with me. If you really believe what you say you believe about prayer and the power of prayer and God's purpose in prayer, if we really believe what we say we believe about that, would that not affect our prayer life? 
Is it possible that a prayerlessness in God's people is actually just the manifestation of a faithlessness in God's people? If we really believe what the Bible says about eternity, heaven and hell, and that Jesus is the only way, would it not affect our witness to the lost? How could we possibly say that we love someone and let them go into eternity having never warned them, witnessed to them, given them the gospel, prayed for them? I propose to you it's because we don't really believe what we say we believe. I'm not saying that you're a heretic and are denying the faith or that I am because I'm preaching to myself here too. Here's what I'm saying. I believe that there is a spirit sometimes in our lives of unbelief which causes us to be able to nod our head and say amen but never put feet to our faith. It's an unbelief. Unbelief is sin. Unbelief is evidenced <clears throat> by our actions. And we have an admonition. Here's the admonition. Go back with me to Hebrews, if you will. Verse 12 of chapter 3 says simply this. Take heed, brethren. lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Take heed. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Let us therefore fear. Verse 11 of chapter 4. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Three things that are said here. Take heed. That means pay attention. It means, to, it means to take stock of your life. It means to take an inventory, to examine yourself. Take heed. Let us, therefore, fear. He said, wait a second here. God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. We're not to live in fear. Oh, no, no, no. We ought to be fearful of the danger of unbelief. We need to recognize the seriousness of this issue. Most of us have heard the Word of God preached hundreds, thousands of times. We know the truth. And yet we'll stand before God someday and give account for where we did not obey the truth. That's a fearful thing. What he's saying is wake up. Unbelief is serious. 
do you really, are you really responding to God simply by saying, we'll hear thee again of this matter? Yeah, that's, that's good preaching, but if I never obey it, am I really responding in faith, or is the word that's being preached not mixed with faith in me? And then he says in verse 11, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest. Now you've got to be careful about this because I know there are some connections within this passage to salvation. And the truth is that there are some that are even being addressed here that had not yet received that salvation. It seems as though he's implying. And you might think, well, boy, the Bible then says that I have to work and I have to labor in order to be saved. We need to understand that's not what the Bible is saying here. The word labor here, the same word is translated to be diligent, to take diligent heed, to study. And here's what it's really saying. You need to be sure that you are responding to God with faith and not unbelief. Friends, I will readily admit to you that there are things that I believe intellectually, I accept them as truth. I, I, I would even teach them to others. I would defend them as being truth, but I struggle to put them into practice in my life because when it really comes down to it, I don't know that I really believe it as I ought. You understand what I'm saying by that? An unbelieving heart is an evil heart. Therefore, think with me on this, if unbelief is sin, there really is only one proper response to that. Confession and repentance. Lord, forgive me for not responding to you in faith, which would be proved out in my obedience. I I'm abandoning that unbelief and choosing by faith to embrace what you've told me and to live it out in my life by your grace and with your help. Let us therefore fear. Take heed. Let us labor to enter into that rest. Can I just ask you this morning, between you and God, is there anything that you believe in your head to be true, but your life is not proving that you believe that? If so, can I encourage you and admonish you to turn from that evil heart of unbelief and trust God for what He has said? Your actions will prove it.